Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 11. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for, di- for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your lands, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing, and in my faithfulness I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offsprings among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in my Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bride and groom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes a sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Luke, Luke. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. On rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Thanks, George. Thanks, Jossie. Morning. It's great to be with you all on New Year's Eve. I don't know about you, but whenever I think of New Year's Eve, I think of kind of the New Year's resolutions, look back on the previous year and start to go, okay, maybe this is now the time to fix all that stuff that, you know, I should have fixed, or maybe for work, your boss makes you fill out kind of a, an evaluation of here's, here's some goals that I want to set, right? Um, but I, I can't help but think about all of the resolutions I made this time last year, and like how kind of they didn't really come true, 
most of them. I don't, I don't know if you're like that or if you're like, yeah, I have my checklist and here it is and every year is just another year uh, to make resolutions, to make plans. Kids, you're really good at this. You just, we're behind the game because you guys all do this like at the start of school, right? It's like, all right, new school year. I'm going to actually do homework or I'm going to actually try and study more than just like 10 minutes before the night before, right? And we, we get in this habit of making goals, making plans, making these resolutions. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, how did that start? You ever think about that? Like, who just decided one, like one day on, on New Year's, like, I'm just going to start fixing things about myself. I'm just going to make plans, and then this New Year, it'll, maybe it'll happen. So I looked it up, like, where did, where did this whole thing come from? And according to history.com, it actually started in ancient Babylon. And if you know anything about Babylon... Uh, our, our minds should go off a little bit when we read the Bible because that's, that's exactly who Isaiah was, was telling the Israelites, hey, here's who's going to come take you over. And I thought, man, how interesting. The, the culture that, that the Israelites are going to go into actually are the ones who, who started New Year's resolutions. Although it looked a little different. This is, again, not me, but this is what I guess smart historians say that the ancient Babylons are supposed to be the first people to make New Year's resolutions about 4,000 years ago. They were also the first to hold recorded celebrations in honor of a new year. Though for them, the year began not now in January, but in mid-March, because that's when you would plant your new crops. That's when the whole kind of business cycle would start over. And during a massive 12-day religious festival. Can you imagine? Like, what if Christmas was 12 days? I mean, it actually is, but we only celebrate it once, right? But a 12-day uh, celebration known as Akidu, the Babylonians would crown a new king, or if they really liked the king that was in charge, they would reaffirm that, like, they loved their king, and they also uh, would make promises to their gods to pay off all of their debts and return any objects that they borrowed. And most historians believe that it was those promises that kind of started the whole New Year's resolution, where if I'm faithful to my word, uh, then the gods will, will give me favor, which is just a, a fancy word for blessings. Yet if I'm unfaithful to my word, then, then I fall out of favor with the gods. Then the gods are, are somehow mad at me because I didn't keep the promises that I made to them, um, which is not a good thing. And I started thinking about that, and I was like, wow, we, we do the same thing, don't we? Our culture does the same thing, and I'm not saying that New Year's resolutions are sinful. They can be. They can also be very redeeming, right? But, but don't we do the same thing? Maybe, maybe it's not to ancient Babylonian gods that we make promises to, um, but we do make promises to false gods. We make promises to the gods of pleasure, money, comfort, and we desperately hope that if we're true to our word, we'll gain favor, we'll gain blessing. If I could just lose that, that 10 pounds, if I could just lighten up a little bit, my, my life will be happier. If I could just get more sleep, then everything will be fine. If I could just get to work on time, if I could just wake up a little bit earlier, if I could just love my wife a little bit better, then this year would be a heck of a lot easier. And yet, I also think, how does, how does God start the new year, if he, if he were to? What, do you, what, do the, what does God's New Year's resolution look like? And it's, it's vastly different. Sometimes we think that maybe our promises should be made to God. And a holy kind of New Year's resolution would be something like this. If I read my Bible more, God will bless me more. 
Or if I, if I just happen to be able to make it to church a little bit more this year, well, then, then I'll receive blessings and, and, and good things from God. And yet, that's not what you read about when God promises to bless his people. You see, before we even dive into Isaiah 61, there's a, a vast difference between the God of the Bible and the God of anything else and any other religion. And it's he's the one who does the promising to his people. He's the one who makes the promises and the covenant to his people. Not, hey, if you keep your word, then I'll bless you. It's one of the most honestly amazing things. It's one thing that sets the Christian religion uh, apart from any other. Is that God is the one who does the promising to his people. Over and over again, all throughout the Old and the New Testament, you see God move towards his people with generosity. You see God move towards his people and then call them to obedience in light of the promises that he's already made to them. And he does the same thing in, in Isaiah 61. And that's really good news because think about your promises, right? If God operated like we did and he only blessed us according to our promises, how good would life really be? Did you keep your promise? Did you, did you keep the weight off? Did you love your spouse better last year? Did you make it to church more? Did you read your Bible more? Maybe for the first little bit, and then you hit Leviticus, and just the Bible reading's out the window, right? You're like, I'll figure this out later. And we immediately have a problem. If God only interacted with us the way that we interact with him, we're in big trouble. And I can show you studies of how uh, anybody, like, what do you think the most common uh, New Year's resolution lasts? I was actually surprised. The, the, the most common ones, yeah, improve fitness, improve finance, improve mental health, lose weight, improve diet. How long do you think that lasted? Uh, the longest was about almost four months, which I was like, that's... I'm not, I'm not in that one. <laughs> I'm in, the, I'm in like the, the two to three week range. And then if it's a really good year, maybe like two and a half weeks, right? But, but pretty soon after, after that, like the, I find that the, the exercise equipment in the basement does a lot better job at drying laundry than it does at me using it, right? Or, or I don't know about you, but just welcome to the world of Jake. I, I get kept up at night by the gym icon on my phone that's just laughing at me. Right, just, just haunting me of, hey, remember this? And it just doesn't happen. And yet the goodness of God is you read a passage like Isaiah 61 and, and you see that we actually have a God who, who makes promises to his people. Who says, okay, so what if, what if the promise of God doesn't rest on me, but it actually rests on another? What if it actually rests on himself? What if it's actually guaranteed in who God is? Welcome to Isaiah 61. So we're going to, if you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to turn there. As, as, as Jossie did such a great job reading it. And as we look at this, it kind of broke it up into, into three parts. You have, you have the message, the effect, and then the fulfillment. The message, the effect, and the fulfillment. And we're going we're gonna to dive in. Verses 1 through 3 are kind of the whole message. What is the whole point? It says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And it's really important to first and foremost, whenever you hear something like this, it's important to know who's talking. Because if this is some prophet a couple thousand years ago talking to people who are all dead now, what is the point? Yet you don't see that. Actually, in verse 1, you see something different. You see the mention of a sovereign Lord, a spirit, and one who's been anointed, or the word Messiah. You see the Trinity. You see Trinitarian language. Who's talking? Well, this is actually the God of the universe. And when he speaks, it's unlike anything else. And when he makes a promise, it's unlike anything else because the one upholding the promise is God. And the anointed one, his Messiah, is the one who's talking. But he's also talking about himself. So you don't get very far before you start to see that the message and the messenger are the same. It's this promised one. It's this promised deliverer that we've, been, that we've been talking about all through Advent. It's this promised deliverer that Isaiah's been promising, except for now he kind of goes, yeah, he's not just going to come, but the whole point of him coming is actually something far bigger than we even thought. It's actually something far more grand than we ever, than we ever thought. It wasn't just, yay, he's here, but that actually means something. And he says, a day of... He speaks of both favor and vengeance. And, and I want to talk about kind of what is this word favor, right? You ever, you ever think about that? Not like a wedding favor, right? But the idea of favor, the idea of, of, of blessings, of good things. Over the, this past week, my wife and I had her, her little nephew with us. And he's almost three. His name's Logan. And we went to Ikea because it was raining and our house is kind of small. And like we needed something to do. Well, I was thinking, we went to Ikea, and that kid had our complete favor. Like, we had to rein it in, because everything that he touched, we wanted to buy him. He's like a big stuffed animal fan. He calls them stuffies. And if you've ever been to the kid section of, actually anywhere in Ikea, they just have, like, stuffed animals all over the place. And they're not just, like, a cat or a dog, right? But it's like a whale. And you're like, what? Like, we walked past this stuffed octopus, and I wanted one. Right? Like, you're like, this is... This is crazy. And that kid had our absolute favor. He walked out of there with like a little ball and like this little, this little orangutan. But like favor was, I wanted everything for him. And in my limited resources, he got a little orangutan and a ball. But Isaiah speaks as if, what if you had the favor of God? That God didn't just love you because he has to. But he actually loves you because he wants to. And the whole thing is categorized by that is God. God promises that is, that is what his favor is. That is his disposition. That is his, bent, that is his feelings towards his people. Culturally, though, we understand favor as good things or blessings that we or other people receive. So as a result of me and my wife's favor, uh, Logan got a stuffy and, and a ball. Right? We see it in the Christmas movies we just watched, right? Scrooge gets this blessing of he comes to this realization that it's not fun really to be a jerk, 
right? And that Christmas means a lot more and you get a lot more fulfillment out of things when you, when you help and love other people. That's, that's a good thing. Or you see Clark Griswold, his blessing is the big bonus check from his boss, right? If you know anything about the movie. Or Ralphie. Ralphie's blessing is a Red Rider BB gun, right? With a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Life couldn't be any better. That's the blessing. And for Kevin McAllister, the blessing is the wet bandits in jail. Arguably more than that, but somehow they only, they just, they survive to get to jail. And Christmas with his family, that really maybe isn't that bad after all. And all these movies end happily. They end comfortably. I mean, if they made the movie, what if they made like a three-week check-in, though? Like, what if we went back and visited Scrooge in three weeks in the middle of January when the bills started to get tight? Did he really change? He still honor Christmas in his heart every day? Maybe. Did Clark Griswold actually get to spend his bonus check on his pool after he fixed all of the damages that were done to his house? Right? Like, I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but th- these are the things that I think about. You can, ask the, you can ask the youth. I basically ruined every Christmas movie for them. Like, is the Red Rider BB gun just kind of collecting dust at this point on the top shelf? Or does Kevin actually hate his family again? That one we do know, because that's like the whole premise of Home Alone 2, right? You're like, you, you've learned nothing. You still hate everybody. You're punching your brother at the Christmas pageant. And we ask these questions. How do I know that there could be t- true change? How do I know that, that, that the blessings of God don't just fade like everything else that I've experienced? Can favor actually extend to far more than just making you happy? Can it extend far more than just whenever you get whatever you were actually after? Does that actually satisfy? And yet, if you look in the pages of the Bible, favor is entire, entirely something different. The favor of God is so different. How does God bless his people? Well, it's not simply by giving them stuff. He actually does something far greater. He gives them himself. The favor of God is God giving his people more and more of himself and then transforming them into vessels to be used for his glory. Now that's hard. Because what if God was more interested in giving himself to his people rather than our momentary, momentary happiness that fades and fleets that other people can change. Well, what if God was more interested in you becoming more like him than in you losing the, that extra 15 pounds? What if God was more interested in, in me becoming more like him than in my financial security or my house not breaking? Here's the thing, this, this would mean that, that God is more concerned with something else. God is more concerned about something more than just me being comfortable. And when we speak of God's favor, it's more than just about the, the good things or the blessings that he's waiting to give us. Actually, when we speak of God's favor, we're speaking more of his character than we are his stuff. And what does God's favor look like in his people? Well, you see verse 3. It, it's, it's transformation. 
They go from mourning to being satisfied. They go from, from ashes to, to beauty. Why? Well, they have a new identity. They have a new name. They'll be called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting for the Lord. And then you see the whole purpose. What is the whole purpose of God blessing his people? To display his glory, to display his splendor. Why does God bless his people? Because he wants to display his goodness and his greatness. God is far more concerned with displaying his glory, his splendor in our lives than he is you and me being happy. That sounds harsh, but I want to get to the point where that's actually really good news. But in order for that, we keep going. God shows his favor to his people by giving them more of himself and blessing them to be a blessing to others. So God is far more concerned with not just making sure that the Israelites are happy, but he says, no, you're, you're mourning. I came to comfort you. You're sitting in ashes, a, a, a sign of, 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 of weeping, a sign of, of, of depression, a sign of, of, of mourning like the death of a loved one. And he says, I'm going to give you a crown of beauty. I am mourning, but the, the oil of joy. You have a spirit of despair I want, to, I want to clothe you with praise. And remember who Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about a people who were so bad, who were so wicked, who violated the covenant so much that God said, I'm actually going to take you out of your land and put you somewhere else because that's how royally you've messed up. And then you come to Isaiah 61 and he goes, but I'm going to show you my favor. And it's for my glory. It's not something you have to earn. The favor of God in Isaiah 61 is given to the failed people of God. God goes, all right, you've done everything wrong. Here's what I'm going to do. And you're like, wait, what? God, this requires far more than just your stuff. This requires a complete transformation of who I am because everything in me is evil. Everything in me is, is against you. Remember, Isaiah is writing to people who actually worshiped false gods. He's writing to people who took the whole testament and went, yeah, no, not feeling it, put it on the shelf, and went and lived their lives. And we realize that's the audience. That's who God targets as his favor. That's who God's willing to transform. Well, then, man, the promises of God must rest not on how good or bad his people are, but on something entirely different. And yet all of these things, comfort, joy, beauty, praise. He says, I'm going to give you these things as you're, as you're miserable. So they must be rooted in something else. In other words, you have to be comforted by something. Beauty must be found in something that's truly beautiful, more beautiful than anything else. Joy is reliant on something. And your praise has to be directed towards something. If I told you this year, be more comforted, be more joyful, be more beautiful, and praise God a lot more, and that's all I told you, you'd be like, all right, next. All right, if I just walked up to you and said, hey, you should be more joyful, you'd be like, thanks. I have a cut on my finger. Do you want to put some lemon juice on that for me? Right? I, I have to give you something that truly embodies all of these things. You can't just be joyful for the sake of being joyful. You can't just be happy for the sake of being happy. All of those things must be rooted in something. And that's the purpose of God's favor. He gives us himself. So our joy isn't rooted in how good I can conjure up my life to be. 
It's actually directed and, and transformed by, here's how infinitely better God is than anything else that I can find. And he doesn't fade. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't become less joyful. He doesn't become less beautiful. But actually, God is like a diamond. You ever look at a, you ever look at a diamond ring? And you see all the different sides of it. Every time it seems like, every time you look at it, you can look at it from a different angle. And the more that we know God, the more that he gives himself to us, the more beautiful he actually becomes. The more joyful we can be, not because our circumstances are great, not because he gives me a lot of good things, but because he truly is better than anything else. So God's favor towards his people ought to actually redirect them back to himself. The favor of God is how he gets us to stop looking at how good life could be and to start looking at how good he is. The favor of God is what lifts our eyes off of our situation, which changes every day, changes every minute, right? You're one bad medical diagnosis away from a terrible day. You're one phone call from your boss away from an awful week. And it's actually the favor of God that lifts our eyes off of those things and goes, put your hope in something that doesn't change. Find your purpose in your life in me. The favor of God is God giving himself to his people to transform them. And that means that God is the one who is the most beautiful. That means God is the one who has it all figured out, even when you and I don't. It's truly a great message. The message is God gives himself to his people, so if you have the God of the universe, you have his favor. And he does it for a purpose, to display his own glory. So what is the effect of this? What is, what is this like? What is the whole point? What actually happens when God gives his favor to his people? Right? And for that, we've got to look at the rest of it. So verses 4 to 7, it affects other people, not just God's people. That's why Isaiah starts talking about other nations. Right? In Isaiah 4, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 61, verses 4 to 7, read with me. It says, They will build the ancient ruins, and they'll restore the places that have been long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. And you will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. You see this effect to the nations. The restoration of God's people becomes an invitation to the nations. And God restores his people and then invites other people in. This isn't just a, hey, me and God and only, you know, the in crowd gets to experience him. No, God's favor is actually giving himself to his people, transforming them so they become an invitation to others who don't know who God is. This idea of becoming blessed to be a blessing. Israel is rebuilt and the other nations come to it. It's a stranger shepherd and work the vineyards. One commentator puts it this way, it's not just restoration but expansion. You see the people of God restored and by restoration, not just happy, not just having good things, but restored in their stance before God. They're given a priestly role. And the whole point of the priest was to, to speak to the people on, on behalf of God. It was to reflect God to the people. That God's people display his glory and they're used by him as priests. And yet, it's better than like what it used to be. Because if you read about the priests in the Old Testament, uh, there were certain things that they, they didn't have. They didn't have land. Their inheritance was to guard the temple, to guard the tabernacle, and they weren't given, 
They weren't given any, any land. Yet in Isaiah 61, it says, no, you're priests, but you also, you also receive land. You get all the benefits of being part of the people of God, yet you also have a special status as, as, as not only God's people, but the ones that he's using to display his glory. You see, instead of shame, he says a double portion. And again, our, our minds should go, what, what is the point of a double portion? Not just one thing, but better. No, the double portion was what the, st- what the firstborn son got. So God not only elevates his people to where he's cool with them and he's not angry at them, but he actually, actually elevates them far more. He goes, yeah, you were shameful, you were disobedient, you were disgraceful, and yet being transformed by the God of the universe looks like going from all of those things, which are true, to being elevated not just to the status of neutral with God, but to the status of his firstborn son and worthy of his inheritance. See, God's goal isn't just to get us back to even terms with him. God doesn't just look at us like my mom would look at me when I was a kid. Like, you, you can see, I, I don't really stand still. It was worse when I was a kid. And my mom would go into, like, certain stores. You know, like, I don't even know why they have them, but you know, like, the glass store? You know what I'm talking about? Where just everything's glass. And my mom would find, like, probably an area that said big and just say, stay there. I'm going to go look, stay there. Don't break anything. And a lot of times we think that's what God does. Like he fixes up our sin, then he puts us in a place, and he goes, all right, so I'm going to come back soon, but stay here and try not to make a mess of things. No, he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't do that at all. He elevates us to a status of you're with me. You're with me, and everything's been taken care of. You're my beloved. You don't have to, you don't have to prove yourself by not screwing up. And we see that's how God transforms his people. And there's also intimacy with God. There's, there's, there's an outward display of it for others, but in the family of God, there's this intimacy with God. And now you see the speaker, the Messiah, now, now speaks from his point of view. You see in verse 8, he says, for I, the Lord, remember the one who's talking, for I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing, In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge, what's their identity? They're a people the Lord's blessed. That's not neutral with God. That's not, they're a people the Lord tolerates. It's not even they're a people the Lord acknowledges. No, but what's true favor? There are people that the Lord blesses. It's far more than just your happiness. Far more than just our our comfort. You see the goodness of God himself in his character. He reaffirms an everlasting covenant, a promise that won't fade after 3.75 months. You see, a promise that's totally different because it's not based on a human's decision, but it's actually a promise that the God of the universe would make to people who have already demonstrated their unfaithful, ungrateful, disobedient. You know, this is something truly unlike anything else. And it's amazing. They're known to the nations. And if, if you keep going, he talks about as a, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Starts talking about marriage language. And we'll get to that. And then he starts talking about garden language. 
For as the soil makes a sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow. You see this idea of intimacy and this idea of growth. God's not just trying to get you to a point where you pray a prayer and then you guys are cool. Oh, he's after complete transformation, going from shameful, despised, disobedient children to being pursued and loved by the God of the universe who gives himself to his people to redirect them back towards himself, to create people who were once shameful to give them dignity, to take disobedient children and elevate them to the status of a firstborn son in whom he's well pleased. See, the favor of God extends far more than just giving us good stuff. He does that too. But if that's all that he was about, well then he'd have to give you good stuff. At least he'd have to give me good stuff every single day and it doesn't happen. And if you and I were kind of alone and, and real, maybe you'd tell me, yeah, but, but, but Jake, how can you say that, that I have the favor of God? Because it doesn't feel like it. Doesn't feel like it. I'm about to start a new year with one less family member. I'm about to start a new year unemployed. You don't understand all that this following Jesus has cost me in failed relationships. If God really loved me, then how come I have to wake up every day with this fear of death? How come I have to deal with this sickness? Or how come I have to watch other people deal with this sickness? It doesn't feel like I have the favor of God. And perhaps the biggest question that we could ask is, how do I know that I have the favor of God? Well, for that, you've got to turn to Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. He was led by, oh, I'm sorry, um, verse 14. Still, he did that. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How do I know that I have the favor of God? Because how can God give you any more of himself than in Christ? Jesus goes, I'm here. I'm here. That's how the scripture is fulfilled. And wherever Jesus is, it's the year of the Lord's favor. He comes, to, he comes to Galilee and he goes in to the synagogue. He goes into the church and he reads it. And then he sits down and says probably the, the coolest sermon ever. Basically sits down and goes, it's me. Done. Remember, what was the whole point? Was that the Messiah wasn't just the one talking. He wasn't just the messenger, but he was the message himself. How do you and I know that we have the, the favor of God? Jesus goes, well, if you have me, you have the favor of God. Because remember, God's favor is God giving himself to his people. And he can't do that any more than Emmanuel. He can't do that any more than God with us. That's why we can celebrate Christmas long after a day because God is still with his people. 
Jesus goes up to heaven and he, he gives us his spirit. And we have the, you and I have the spirit of the living God inside of us. If you have come to faith in Jesus, God is with you. You have God's favor. You see, how does Jesus bring God's favor? It's by him being rejected. If you want to keep reading later, there's a lovely story about how. So how does Jesus' hometown respond to, hey, I'm here. It's about me. This is the year of the Lord's favor. How do they respond? They attempt to throw him off a cliff. Immediately, he's rejected. It's almost like you could go back in Isaiah 60, 61 and read, read it the opposite way, and that's exactly what Jesus gets. Instead of the double portion of a firstborn son, he gets shame. Instead of being clothed in beauty, he's despised and rejected, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. How do I know that I have the favor of God and not just the wrath of God upon me? Because the Son of God, who deserves all the favor, willingly took his wrath. He willingly trades places with you and me. That's amazing news because that means, how does God feel about you? Well, if you were united with Christ, God feels about you the same way he feels about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but right, we're, talking about, we're talking about the one who was baptized, and at his baptism, the spirit descends, and a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know about you, but I don't know how you get more favor than that. When God looks at you and me, he doesn't see your shame, which is real. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that just blows my mind. That should blow our minds that when God sees you, he doesn't just tolerate you. He actually approves of you to the same degree that he approves of Jesus. That's his favor. And remember, it was something that he promised. It was something that you didn't earn and that's great news because then it's something that you can't lose. In the midst of feeling despised and rejected, we look at the one who is ultimately despised and rejected. And we know that he bought our standing before God. God demonstrates his favor to his people by giving them more of himself. And yet then that's not even the end of the story. Isaiah 61 talks about a wedding and then a garden. And what's so cool is if you go to Revelation 21, John says, and then I, then I saw that, that, that there is a bride and there is a bridegroom. There is a wedding that happens in heaven. And, and, and the groom is Jesus. And the bride is his people. So right now, when we feel like, man, how do I know that I have the favor of God? How do I know that he hasn't forgotten me? How do I know that I haven't kind of fallen out of his good graces because I made a lot of promises that I haven't kept? Well, he's already told you and I the ending of the story. And that is, you and I become united with Jesus in the fullest way. At the wedding, you're, you're the bride of Christ. And then if you keep reading in Revelation 21, after it talks about a wedding, you know what it immediately talks about after? A garden. A garden that's not just outside of a city, but it's actually a garden that encompasses all things. It's the complete renewal and restoration of all things. How do you and I know that we have the favor of God? Because he is transforming you into the image of his son, whom he's well pleased. And he's bringing you and I to a day where we will, I love it, John says in Revelation, you're going to see his face and be like him. 
That's why Paul could say that, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the year of the Lord's favor, and it's a year that doesn't end. It's a year that started the minute, the, the minute Jesus said it started. And it never ends. It gets sweeter and sweeter, even in the midst of coming face to face with death. It only brings about that future reality even more. Because then you see a day where death is defeated. You see the day of, of vengeance, and it's that God defeats those enemies, and it's not you. It should be, but it's not. It's everything that threatens our relationship with him. Completely rids us of sin, completely rids the world of the curse. God's favor builds and builds as he continues to transform his people. So as we come to a time where we're tempted to follow our, our culture and think about how we can better ourselves, as you stay up tonight, probably far later than you should, and you're tempted to go, okay, how am I going to make this year my year? What if we just stopped for a second? And we thought, you know what? I already have the favor of the God of the universe. It's already been purchased and guaranteed in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How can I learn to look for ways that he's transforming me? As you think back on this year, don't think about all the things that you failed to do. That's too easy. How are you being made to look more and more like Jesus? How do you look more like Jesus now than when you started? Anglican pastor John Newton wrote, he wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He said this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not even what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So how has God transformed you this year? And how in this coming year can you continue to look like Jesus? To your neighbors, to your friends, to your teachers. And don't think for a minute that God's interested in a promise that you give to him. He's all about the promises that he gives to you and me. And the yes and amen to every one of them is in Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that far more than gauging our performance on a yearly basis, you look at us, Father, through the performance of Christ, the perfect Son of God. And God, as you demonstrate your favor to us, as you give us more of yourself, you've, you give us more of Jesus. So as you help us to look more like him, and we'll find that looking like him looking, looks a lot like loving you and loving others that you bring into our lives. So this year, would you make us look more like Jesus? Would you make us a people more eager to look like our Savior. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.